Hey, grab your Bible, if you would, and turn to the Old Testament book of Obadiah. I'm giving you a little extra head start because some of us may not be very familiar with where Obadiah is. We cleared it up for you last week. Just look for the book of Amos. It's the very next one. Should be pretty simple, folks. Are there any superstitious folks? Don't raise your hand here. You know, some people believe in some really crazy things when it comes to superstitions. I was thinking about this uh, recently. There's some crazy habits and activities. Probably one of the most famous superstitions is the horseshoe. Um, Some people... uh, you know, recognize this universally, and they think if you, is it, if you place it upright, at the top right corner of your front door frame, it's considered to be an invitation for good luck to enter your home. Some people have luck charms or luck lockets or bracelets, and they are promoted to bring good fortune to those who wear them. Here, this may be a new one. The acorn. Did you know about this? The nut of the oak tree, also called the oak apple, carrying a dried acorn is believed to give the gift of youth to the wearer. I I know our light bears group is going to be handing them out next week. Here we go, gang. And they say it also can be used for wealth, and attraction of the opposite sex. Have you ever heard that in your life? I told someone this recently about the acorn attracting the opposite sex, and they said, well, it does work. I said, what? They said, it worked for you. I said, what? They said, yeah, your wife was attracted to a nut. (laughs) It wasn't really funny, people. Some believe carrying keys or adorning feathers brings good luck. And one of the most popular good luck symbols of all time, the rabbit's foot. Now just think about it, really. A hunk of metal from the bottom of a horse hoof is supposed to really change your fortune. A nut from a tree... If you hold a rabbit's foot, I mean, let's get reality. Was it really good luck for the rabbit? It was not. So it's not, really, not going to do you any good either. You just think about this, and it just sounds so ridiculous. Like putting your trust and your hope in some of these things, like it's really going to change your life. It's not going to happen. So let's just step away from those crazy things and talk about some of the things that, truthfully, you and I, probably struggle with putting our trust in, though, on a regular basis. Let me, let me walk through some of these. Some people put their full confidence in their bank account or their employment or some people in their, in their education or their intelligence or some people are saying, you know what I'm counting on? I'm counting on a good inheritance one day and it's going to solve all my problems. Some people put their full confidence in their military, or their relationships, or some people their family name and their personal identity, or some people are banking everything on their political party, 
or their personal connections or their health. It's all about their health or their weapons. Some people put confidence in other things when life is going rough and they turn to a pill or a bottle or a sexual encounter or a roll of the dice, all of these things, I think we all have sensed at some point we've been there or we are there right now. These are things that we hold so much confidence in and hoping that things will work out well. And like a crutch, we just, we don't know how much we truly lean on that crutch until it gets kicked out from underneath of us. And then we find out. Because if we lean too much, you know what happens. It, it, we're going down. We're going to go over. That's where we are here in the book of Obadiah. Are you, do you finally get there? Just one chapter in the whole thing, Obadiah. And there is a lesson in here from, for everyone in the, the group that God is talking to through the prophet Obadiah. And let's just go ahead. I want to read down through these first nine verses so we regain our understanding and then we are going to tackle the reality of what are we trusting in. So would you just for a moment, let's get that blood flowing. This is, this is um, a warm morning. I can sense that we need to stand up for a second. Would you stand with me? I want to read these first nine verses and get a sense of what God is telling. Now, he's telling the people of Edom. This is who this book is written to. And this is what he's telling them. He's pronouncing judgment on them, and he's telling them that whatever they're trusting in, isn't get, it's not going to do it for them. Look at verse 1. Here's the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say... Rise, let us go against her for battle. God says to Edom, see, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks. And make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? And though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked. His hidden treasures pillaged, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. And in that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? Those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, your warriors, Teman, will be terrified. And everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Have a seat, please. We started last week in this little three-week series in Obadiah just by way of 
bringing us up to speed again, Obadiah is a minor prophet. The major prophets are the long books of the Old Testament, the long prophetic books of the Old Testament. The minor prophets, they're just the shorter books of the prophets of the Old Testament. And Obadiah's name means a slave or a worshiper of Yahweh. And the main thrust of this whole book goes all the way back to problems between two brothers, two twin brothers. They were not identical twins. They probably couldn't get any more different. And the first one born was Esau. And then the second one who was born was Jacob. And the scriptures mention that when Esau was born, Jacob was reaching out, grabbing his heel almost symbolically like, no, 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 you're not going to be ahead of me. I'm going to be the first one. I'm going to be the most important one. And I can only imagine back in that day when all the ladies of Israel got around to tell their birth stories. I'm sure they went through all their stuff. And Rebecca stepped forward and said, that's nothing, girls. Wait till I tell you about my twin boys and what happened right off the bat. And that struggle between Jacob and Esau didn't just start and end at birth. They fought all the way through. And then their descendants fought. And that's what the book of Obadiah is talking about. Here, Israel had Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come through and they started, uh, Babylon took them over and, and they really pounded on Israel. And then while Babylon was pounding on them, the Edomites, Esau's descendants, came in and ransacked Israel as well. And they took away their money. They killed people. They wouldn't let them escape. And this is why God's saying, you know what? You mess with my kid, Israel. You're messing with me. And so God pronounces judgment on Edom. Now, I just want to bring us up to speed with the reality. Edom felt pretty secure. God says, I'm going to destroy you. I don't think Edom took him seriously. And here's why. What did Edom trust in? Thinking it would protect them from God. I'm going to give you these things. Grab your study guide if you would on the back. These are all listed through. These are the five things that Edom was trusting in, thinking they were safe. Here's number one. Their impenetrable location. Their impenetrable location. Verses three and four in this edict from God says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. And then there is an indication of where they live. You who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? So they had this location. I just want to show you a few pictures to remind us. This is Edom. This is the city of Edom and the Edomites um, in so much of what they experienced, you'll see some pictures up here on the screen. The very first one, this is an amphitheater found there in this region that they had developed. And can you just, I don't know how well you can see, but every groove, every seating layer is up there. You realize these people didn't have power equipment. Can you imagine the magnitude of this job in putting something like this together? And they're thinking, who's going to be able to destroy us in our solid rock location? Here's another one. There's the Rock of Edom. And essentially, this is a 
a significant area in that region. And the Edomites used this particular area for a number of things, one of which in this next slide you're going to see are the tombs of Petra. And in fact, um, bump to the next slide as well. Here you can see actually looking in an area that they used for the burying of their own. Look at the next slide. This is an entrance to Petra. And you can see the significance of the rocks, that not everyone can just come from any direction. Anyone who came to try to take them would be found and seen way ahead of time. If you notice this as well, the next one, this is the mountain range all around this area of Edom and the city of Petra. From any direction that people would come, their armies could see from a long ways away. And this last one, uh, this is why they felt secure. If anyone was to try to attack them, they could see him coming from miles away. There's no way to sneak up on him. And if anyone was to try to come into their city, they had to come through very narrow gates, and Edom would be able to defend themselves quite easily. They thought they were indestructible. Here's number two, their wealth. They trusted in their wealth. Verses 5 and 6 intimate some of the wealth that they had. <clears throat> they mentioned thieves coming and robbers, and, um, and they mentioned that they would be ransacked. At the end of verse 6, their hidden treasures pillaged. Now, when you look at the rocks, you look at all of the areas and zones that things could be hidden, you realize they could stash away quite a treasure in fact, the largest, most significant place there in Petra was their treasury. It was a, a massive place hewn into the rock where they kept so much of their money and, and their possessions, and, and they really believed that their wealth would bring them intense security. They, they had a lot of wealth, not only from what they had, but also from what they stole from Israel. And God said, you know what, it's not going to do you any good. You're going to lose it all, all of it. Here's the next thing. They were trusting in their allies and their friends. <clears throat> the way that they could overtake Israel was they hopped on the Babylonian train with King Nebuchadnezzar, and they allied with him and the Arab nations around them, and so they felt they were safe with their allies and friends. But let me just, I'm going to leak the whole story to you right off the, right off the bat. Their allies and friends were the very ones that brought them down. Later, I'll tell you about that in a minute. Here's number four, <clears throat> their education. They were trusting in their education. And verse eight mentions, in that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Now, this was a big deal in that day. <clears throat> Every city in Old Testament days had its educated people, and Edom was no exception when it came to learning. In fact, if, if you look at that great architecture in stone and how it showed um, all of the detail, you realize these were very intelligent people. These were folks that knew what they were doing. And here's number five, what they trusted in. They trusted in their trained military. Verse nine, your warriors, he says, Teman. And the land of Teman is believed to be a military base just outside of Petra. 
and it was erected to protect the city from attack. And their warriors had to navigate the mountains. They looked around all over. They kept watch. And so not only were these folks very trained warriors, but they're moving through the mountains. These guys were, these were buff men. These were strong people who had to work with the stone and go over the mountains. And they, they would look over these canyons in order to be able to make sure that they were safe 24-7. It's interesting. Whenever God punished Israel for their disobedience, he said he would always leave a remnant. And he did. Because we see the Israelites, the Jewish people today, God says, you know, I'm going to punish you for your disobedience. I'm going to leave a remnant. But it's interesting with Edom. God says, when I take you out, there's going to be nothing left. There's going to be zero. And you wonder, did he really do that? I mean, was it difficult because of their position, because of their wealth, because of their military? Did, was it a struggle for God? Did this really happen? Let me just give you a little snippet here. Those in Edom and Petra allowed Arabs to commune with them in their land, and within 30 years, this is interesting, within 30 years, Edom was overtaken from within. They kind of lost control of their city from within. And within 100 years of their celebration of Israel's defeat, the Nabataeans entered the land of Eden from two different directions. And they caught the inhabitants off guard. The Nabataeans had been allies with them. And listen to me, folks, with this. And history records every person, every Edomite in Edom proper and Petra were entirely destroyed. Nobody left. There were some Edomites left on the earth. They were in Jerusalem. Some overtook. When they overtook Jerusalem, they actually stayed in Israel. Next week, I can't give it away right now, next week I'm going to tell you the most famous Edomite name that you never knew was an Edomite and his connection with the birth of Jesus Christ and how all of this came to be. I'm going to make a mention to you next week. We're going to study that out and figure it out. But let me tell you, even the Edomites in Israel by AD 70 were completely killed when Rome came in and took over Israel. I want to give you two realities we need to embrace this morning. These are so important. Here's reality number one. As we look at the fact that God told Edom, I'm going to take you out. Reality number one, God is unstoppable. God is unstoppable. Can you say that with me this morning? God completely, no one can hold him back. No one tells God what to do. 
And Obadiah is proof of God's power and his might in that over 2,600 years later, here we are from the time of this writing, 2,600 years later, and I'm going to tell you, you're going to meet plenty of Jewish people in your lifetime. You will never meet an Edomite. And the reason why is they do not exist. And the reason they do not exist is nothing could keep God from his pronouncement of judgment on them. God is totally unstoppable. Here's some verses that go along with this. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Here's Daniel 4.35. This is the admission of Nebuchadnezzar who says he, God, does according to his will. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Job 42.2. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. The admission of Job, God will do whatever he chooses to do and no one can hold him back. And then there's Psalm 115.3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Now I'm just going to lay it right out there, folks. There is no power on earth that can do anything to stop God or impede his progress. It's been tried. Folks, the Bible has been burned Believers have been tortured. Laws have been enacted. Education adjusted. Folks, the crucifixion of Jesus was the world's attempt to say, let's get rid of this Christianity. This is ridiculous. Enough of it. And little did they know that they started a fire that has burned globally, and no one's been able to put this thing out. And the reality is, when God's going to do something, nobody can stop it. One of my favorite illustrations of all time, I think I mentioned it here last year, it's about Voltaire. He's this French philosopher who died in 1778. This is the most incredible thing. He literally traveled around the world, especially enlightened Europe. He wanted to convince people that the word of God is, is worthless. And he predicted in his stump speeches, he said, people... In 100 years after I die, the Bible will no longer be on the earth. That was his prediction. <clears throat> well, he died. Catch this. 50 years later, the Geneva Bible Society bought his home. And the very printing presses he used to print all of his atheistic treatises, guess what they use those printing presses for? To print the Bible. The Bible says heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never die. And the reason for that, folks, I'm just going to tell you straight up. Our God is unstoppable. Period. Here's number two. Second thing we see from this part, not only is God not going to be stopped, but really ultimate trust in anything but God is failure. 
Boy, you see it, don't you? You see Edom saying, I think we're in good shape. I know God is pronounced judgment. I think we're all right. We got this position. We got the money. We got the brains. We got the power. We've got it all. I think we're in good shape. And, and we realize now that we see the end of the story, trusting in anything else but God is failure. And I think of the things that we're most tempted to trust in and put our weight in, and all of them can be taken away. Our, our monies, our employment, our educational intelligence, our future inheritance, our military, our relationship, our political party, our connections, our health, our weapons. Everything that we put our trust in, it can be taken away. How do we gauge where our confidence rests? How do we know if we're really trusting God or if we're trusting in some of these other things? I thought of a few things our staff talked about a little bit this week. <clears throat> Here's some things you can plug in underneath there. How do we gauge where our confidence truly rests? I, I thought one way we can gauge where our confidence rests is what do we fear losing the most? You ever thought about that? When you lay awake at night and you're concerned about something, what do you fear losing the most? And oftentimes, whatever that is, that's a, that's a gauge or a sense of, Maybe what we're putting our hope or our trust in the most. What we fear the most. Here's number two. Um, what do we focus on the most? I, I was thinking about this with, um, with some things that we can be preoccupied. <clears throat> what, do we, what do we preoccupy our minds with? And so uh, sometimes we'll, we'll think about, um, man, my, my job. And, I, and I'm thinking about that. Or I'm thinking about, oh, the money. And how is this all going to work out? And and the things that, that we think about, you know, I got to get on Scott trade and I got to change these because I just see something. And some people just focus incessantly on, on all these other things. And, and when I thought about that, I thought of Matthew 6.33, where Jesus told his disciples, because they were worried about food, clothing. I mean, those are important things. Amen. Wow. Clothing. Amen. Okay. Like, where are we, folks, you know? They're important needs. And God says, you know what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. So God says, don't, don't preoccupy with all the temporal, but preoccupy with kingdom things. What do we focus on? There's a few others. Who or what do I go to first? This is a good indicator of our trust. Who do I go to first? The friend? Google? The bottle? The pill? Here's another one. Do we rationalize our way out of obedience? When we come to a situation, to a panic, we say, I know what God wants me to do. I know what's right to do. However, that's too hard. And I think if I just do this, it'll be okay. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 just say very well, 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Here's another one, a last gauge of our confidence where it rests. Are we overcome with peace or worry? Philippians 4 is a tremendous passage that discusses those two things side by side. And where are we at with that? Are we consumed with worry? Is our stomach in knots? Are we, is our mind just racing about all of these problems? Or are we in a state of rest or peace that the Bible talks about in Philippians 4 passes all understanding? Like, it doesn't make sense. Why in the world are you calm in a situation like this? It's God's peace. I know some people that have lost it all. We were chatting about it in, in her staff this week, and, and we're like, what if you get down to the end of the month and you only have 10 cents? You only have 10 pennies to your name. I'm not going to tell who this was on staff. And they said, well, you know what? That's 10 rides on Sandy in Meyer. You know, I found the thing that I often trust in the most. I don't think you're a lot different than me. Another thing I trust in the most is self. The thing we often trust in the most is self. And I'll tell you why. Often we drain all the options, all the resources, and then we go to God. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the issue of the crisis comes, and then we think of ways around it, and we Google options through it, and then we call our friend about it, and then we consult with the professionals about it, and then we complain about it on Facebook, and then we throw out our, all of our money at it, and we put our smarts to the work, and after we do everything and almost drain all of our resources imaginable, then we say, you know what? Let's try God. We've got a story of a man who had every crutch kicked out from under him. His name is Horatio Spafford. He was a, a successful lawyer and business person in Chicago. He had a lovely family. His wife, Anna, and five children, and they, though, were not strangers to tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year, much of their business was lost to the great Chicago fire. And God, in his mercy and kindness, allowed the business to, to sputter back up and get going again. Now, on November 21st, 1873, there was a French ocean liner that was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on board. And among the passengers were Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Mr. Spafford had planned to go with the family, but he found it necessary to stay in Chicago to help solve an unexpected business problem. And he told his wife, you go on ahead with the girls and I will get another ship and connect with you in Europe in a week. And about four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, 
the ocean liner collided with a powerful iron-hulled Scottish ship. And suddenly, everyone on board was in imminent danger, and Anna grabbed the girls, the four girls, and they, and they went on deck, and she knelt there with Annie and Margaret Lee and Bessie and Tanetta, and they prayed, God, would you spare us? If that be your will, or make them willing to endure whatever awaited them, and within 12 minutes, the ocean liner slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic and took down 226 passengers, including the Spafford's four daughters. A sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of wreckage. It was Anna. She was still alive. He pulled her into the boat. They were picked up by another large vessel, which nine days later landed in Wales. From there, she wired her husband a message which said this, saved alone, what shall we do? Another of the ship survivors, a pastor, later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they've been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Mr. Spafford booked passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife in Wales. And with the ship about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin when they were just about over the very spot that the ocean liner went down, taking his four daughters with it. And he pulled Spafford up and said, this is where it went down. And Spafford went back to his room, and he grabbed a pen, and he took a piece of paper, and he wrote these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, and it is well with my soul. How can you get all of the crutches kicked out from under you and still stand. I was thinking about it this week. Are you familiar with the terms load-bearing, a load-bearing wall? Load-bearing walls are primary walls that help to hold up the whole structure. There's a lot of walls in our homes, most of which don't hold up the structure. But there's a few, you don't want to touch them because if you do, there's problems. This year, I actually took some walls out in my home. I wanted to create a larger area for us to have um, the laundry up on the main level. And so to do that, 
there were three walls I wanted to take out in this back room of ours. And I remember I brought some folks in and I said, look, I want to take these out. And they said, yeah, um, make sure they're not load-bearing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll make sure they're not load-bearing. How do I know, you know? Another guy comes in and says, make sure they're not load-bearing. I said, well, how am I going to know that? And they said, well, climb up in the attic and look around, and you'll see if they're load-bearing. I'm like, okay. So I climbed up in the attic and I looked around. I really don't know what I'm looking for. I hope they're not load-bearing. And so the day came, time to start taking these walls down, and all the time I'm thinking in my head, boy, I hope they're not load-bearing, and I'm popping out stud after stud with my sledgehammer. And then I go down the other wall. And here is this one corner post. It's like three two-by-fours together right in the corner, and I took out all the other ones this way, and I'm thinking, that is the main ones. Now's the moment of truth. Is this load-bearing or not? And I'm looking up at the ceiling. I'm thinking, if this is not load-bearing, I'm in trouble. And I took my sledgehammer and I hit that thing and it barely wiggled. I thought. There must be a lot of weight. This thing's holding up. Is it load-bearing? And Let's do it again. And I hit the thing, boom, and it started to shift a little bit. And boom, and it started to shift a little bit more. And, and I knew this next one, this next one, and it was going to be out. And I, I just leaned back, boom, and that whole board, just all three of them just went up. The nails pulled out of the roof, and it slammed on the floor. And I looked up, and wouldn't you know it, it wasn't load-bearing. Praise the Lord. And it's still standing. The roof is, hasn't moved one inch. And so you think about our lives. How can you lose such significant things and not come crumbling down? I mean, they were important walls. But that's not what I was putting my trust in. So people can lose money and still smile. Because I wasn't putting my weight on, it wasn't load-bearing. It's a nice wall, sure I needed it, but you know, if it goes, I don't go with it. And some people lose relationships and, and they were important. But I wasn't putting my whole weight on that. Some people's health goes down, and you know it's significant, and our lives change, but you know what? We don't go down with it because we weren't putting our whole weight in that. And I really believe that in life, we understand more than ever as we get into this thing, ultimate trust in anything else but God is failure. I want to finish with these two things that I want to encourage all of us to do. Would you do these with me? Two things I want us to trust God for. And the right down at the bottom of your sheet, trust God for your eternity. 
Trust God for your eternity. Let me just be plain. If we trust in anything else for our eternal destiny, we are done. Some people say, you know what? I think I'm good enough to get myself to heaven. Some people say, you know what? If I go to church enough or if I give enough or if I serve enough, you know, I'm in a great family or do people know who I am And they think these things may get them to heaven. And let me just share with you the reality. The Bible says, the words of Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. Trust in anyone else, in anything else, to get us to heaven is failure. And I want to encourage everyone here The primary way that we need to trust God today, if you haven't done it yet, is to say my only way to heaven is by believing that Jesus Christ bore my punishment for my sin when he died on that cross. My sin's going to be punished. I know it is. And either I believe he was punished for me or I bear the punishment for myself in hell one day and putting our weight in anything else but jesus christ for our eternal salvation is failure and i want you to trust god for your eternity here's the second thing i want you to trust god for your life (laughs) trust god for your life if we'll trust god to get us to heaven i think we should be able to trust him for everything down here too And I just want to give you three steps to prove our trust. And with these, we'll finish. Three steps to prove our trust. And here's number one. You want to prove that you're trusting God, pray. Pray. Call out to him. Go to him first. Express your concerns to him. Cast your care upon him. Here's number two, obey. To show we trust God, we're not going to take shortcuts We're not going to do something else thinking it may bring a better result, even though God doesn't want us to do it. We pray, we obey, and then we experience peace. Pray, obey, peace. Those are the three things. Trusting him means we do what he says even if it doesn't make sense. Trusting says that we believe his promises even if they seem impossible to happen that we know he will make all things right, even though it seems so strong that the wrong will prevail. That we believe his word, even if our world discredits it, and we trust him through it all because we know, folks, we know that of all the things that God can do, there is one thing that God cannot do. And the one thing that God cannot do is fail. And so we put our trust in him. Would you close your eyes with me? What are you trusting in today? We all deal with things. Are we putting weight, all our weight, on a wall that shouldn't be load-bearing? We're setting ourselves up for failure, folks.
And I really believe that today, here and now, we just need to do business with God. He deserves our confidence and our trust. And I want to encourage you, talk to him. There's a need to express repentance and ask for forgiveness for putting our hope and expectations in things that they shouldn't have been. Let's do that. If you don't know where you're going for eternity, today's the day to handle that. do business with God. He means what he says. He does what he says. He'll never be denied. He's the ultimate load-bearing wall that can never, ever be kicked out. Would you take a moment and pray in your heart any of these things talk to God about? give you a few moments to do that, just in the quiet, talk in your heart to God. God, we need weight, we need support. We need someone to hold us up through all of life's challenges. And God, I pray that we would be a people that fully trust in you. And whatever gets kicked out from underneath of us, may we never go down because that's not what we were ultimately trusting in anyways. Hold us up. Be your faithful self to us. We trust you, God. We do. In Jesus' name, amen.